0: Let's gather up.
1: Good morning. Good to see everybody. We are in the book of Ruth. And... uh, We didn't get real far last week, but we spent some time on introduction. Let me open us in prayer, and I think we'll pick it up there. Amen. Heavenly Father, we uh, seek your face this morning, Lord. We, uh, we're grateful for so many things. Lord, you, you give us life, you give us food, you give us uh, people that uh, we love. Lord, we thank you for the rain that you've given us and what a blessing it is on the land. Lord, you... You tell us if we hunger and thirst for righteousness that you'll fill that need. And we would uh, seek you in that today, Lord, as we go through your word to seek what you you would have for us in the way of your truth and your righteousness. And We pray these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So we're in a new book, starting last week. Spent some time uh, just kind of laying the background. You know, I chose Ruth because... Jesus Christ is the kinsman, redeemer of all believers. And uh, this book is one that illustrates uh, very well that concept for us. Um, it points up, as I said, the love side of redemption. And uh, it can be studied on multiple levels. We had said that it is a historical book, so we can look at that. It's, it has theological principles for us, illustrations of things, that will be further expounded on in the New Testament uh, and it has a lot of practical application for us as well. We uh, looked a bit at the historical background last week and we saw that uh, the timing of this book was uh, during the days or the period of Judges and we looked at that a little bit. We saw what a dark time that was in the history of Israel when people were doing just what they wanted all the time and they went through cycles of apostasy and God would pull them out each time and give them a, another judge. And we looked at some of the backgrounds of the people. We looked at Israel coming out of Egypt, and we looked at uh, the Moabites and where they came from. And uh, we talked a little about the purposes that we'll find in the book here. We're going, we're going to see, as I, I believe, a major purpose: the sovereignty of God, uh, how He works, you know, behind the scenes sometimes, and He does it uh, with ordinary people but he always accomplishes his will, and so his presence is there, and I think it's uh, it's there throughout this book. We looked at uh, the purpose of genealogies and that it establishes the necessary link from Christ to Judah through David. Uh, that's very interesting. We looked at uh, the illustrations that are there. We, we see that uh, Boaz is a prefigure of uh, Jesus Christ, and so we really want to focus in on that redemption part and uh, then also the, uh, just uh, the, some of the features of the book that are so endearing to us. And we're going to look at names, uh, the meanings of names, of people and of places as we go throughout. Because they do. They give us some idea of the character of the people or the circumstances of when they were born or of the, uh, of the ideas that God has put forth with certain places that he wants us to see. And so we had just gotten into the book last week. Oh, other, one other thing I also pointed up. I don't know what it is with me. <laughs> I've changed the format of the presentation in the keynote, and it's still doing this. Uh, one second. You got it. Yeah, OK. And so, I pointed at three words that we will see as we go through uh, the book. Uh, one of them is redeem. That, that word redeem or redemption in some form will show up as we go through. Um, the word return is uh, figures uh, more so in the first chapter. We'll see that and how it might be related to repentance. And then we're looking for the word kindness. In lieu of the word love, we were looking for kindness. The Hebrew is Hasid, and it's that Uh, loyalty born of love out of a covenant relationship, which uh, includes sacrifice and grace. So last week, we did read through the first two verses. I'll repeat them. We had begun to talk about it, but uh, chapter 1 of Ruth, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So we talked initially about famines and that how frequently they are judgments from God. Um, I think Jeff pointed out also that the judgment didn't necessarily... Uh, only mean punishment, but that there were things that God wants to bring people to, especially his own, to bring them to a point of making choices of uh, uh, repentance, if you will. And I think that is part of what he was doing here. Now, we had talked about uh, Moses speaking to the Israelites before they go into the Promised Land uh, and kind of regiving the law in Deuteronomy. Remember, this would have been a, a different generation that had actually started Uh, From Egypt at the beginning of the wilderness travel, so they were. uh, He was kind of re-giving. It's called the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, and he spoke of blessings and curses: blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And I read a whole passage there, but just the end of it was this regarding famine in Deuteronomy eleven seventeen. It says, "The Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish." from the good land the Lord is giving you. And that is speaking of a physical famine. But there are also other kinds of famine, right? There's a there's the spiritual famine. Um, Amos, Amos uh, chapter 8, verse 11 speaks of the spiritual famine. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. And not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing of the words of the Lord. So there's spiritual famine as well as physical famine. And I think that very often they accompany one another, don't you? Uh, and that may well be what was going on at the time of, the, of this uh, particular uh, event in uh, the book of Ruth. Okay, now moving on. I said already that meanings uh, names have meanings, okay? And that we were going to look at some of the meanings beginning in these two verses. And it re- reveals something about the person or about the place, and it can give us some insight into biblical truth. So let's first consider the places mentioned in the first two verses of uh, chapter one of Ruth. How about Bethlehem and Judah? Now Bethlehem, probably many of you in here know this, in Hebrew it means house of bread, house of bread. And the idea then would be abundance, that there was, it it would be plentiful uh, provides, and uh, it's able to satisfy. It's Basically, it's a promise. It's God's promise of food. Has anyone in here been to, to Bethlehem before? Yep. I um, see several. What um, were your impressions? Another what?
0: Another thing about Bethlehem that's interesting is before it was named Beth- Bethlehem, it was named Ephrath, which is fruitfulness.
1: So So Ephrath if- comes from that's Bethlehem, that. Okay. It's
0: the same, name, same place. Okay. And it was renamed Bethlehem.
1: Very good, Ephrath. And so that would, that's why they're called Ephrathites. That's, that old, that's referring back to that older. It was Bethlehem and the area around Bethlehem. Uh, in fact, uh, it was the place where we find that uh, put together for us in Genesis 35, verse 19, because uh, this is where Rachel was buried, saying that, uh, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, and that is Bethlehem. So that helps us to clear that up. Now, uh, Bethlehem is an important place. I think we'd all agree. We know that this is where Jesus was born. Uh, Micah, in the fifth chapter, verse 2, 700 uh, years B.C., uh, spoke of this. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. From ancient times, from eternity past, actually. And uh, so he prophesied this. The book of Ruth then provides that necessary connection to get us from Christ's uh, genealogy and back. So it establishes that genealogy. Uh, and it's important because Christ is going to be born there. What's another name for Bethlehem? City of David, right? So he would be born there. So this is just fulfilling all the little parts and pieces that God has sown into his plan. Another important feature of Bethlehem would have been the commerce back then. They were uh, Part of what they uh, would uh, do for, for uh, productivity was the breeding and raising of lambs, and that would be specifically for the Passover, using the Passover offerings. Okay, move on to Judah. Now Judah would be the southern portion of Israel. Later it will be called the southern kingdom when they actually have kings and they divide uh, Israel and Judah into two separate kingdoms. But Judah means praise, as in to the Lord, praise to the Lord. And we would expect there would be uh, blessings associated with that praise. So that would be important. Moab, remember we studied last week, its name means seed of my father or uh, from my father. And I think we know that is, that's alluding to that incestuous Uh, story between uh, Lot and his oldest daughter. I have a picture of a map here, but you can't see it. Uh, Anyway, you would see that Moab is located uh, east of the Dead Sea and slightly below Bethlehem, and that total distance would be somewhere between 30 and 50 miles of a trip. Now, let me just ask this. Does scripture, Scripture... have any other terms that you can think of where God speaks of moab Moab is my washbowl, my wash basin, and that 's actually found in two psalms psalm one hundred eight and psalm uh, sixty point eight uh, so uh, this is the scene would have been uh, King David was in battle against the north, the Mesopotamians, and as they were as he was fighting these guys. From the south, Edom starts to come in, and, and David is feeling like he needs you know, supernatural help, and he, and he petitions the Lord for help. And in the process, God speaks back to David, and, uh, he, and he, in, in that, he gives his opinion of the surrounding nations. So we have in that psalm what it is that uh, God thinks of the surrounding nations. In and, and, uh, Psalms uh, 60, verses 7 and 8, The Lord says, Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. And so we see from these verses that God considered Moab his, um, his bucket for washing, dirty clothes, dirty feet. And the spiritual application for this Jewish family of Elimelech, or for any backslidden believer, by the way, is that God may let us go. He may let us go to a place, to the world, uh, or through trials in order to wash the filth from our lives, to wash it out. And, and that dirt and that garbage that's left behind there uh, stays so that we can, we can kind of think of Moab as, as, as a spiritual garbage can. And let's see, as we go through the book, if this maybe happens with Naomi. Next, let's look look at the names of the people that have been mentioned so far. Elimelech, that's the Jewish father in this family. His name means, my God is king, or God is my king. Isn't that a great name? Wouldn't you like to be called God is my king? I mean, you you give a testimony every time you walk into the room, hey, God is my king. I wonder if he's gonna live up to this, though, as we look at what he does. Naomi, his wife, she's a Jewess. Her name is Pleasant. It means uh, pleasant or my joy. But her names it's a little more worldly than Elimelech's and that there's no reference to God into it, in it. But it probably would characterize her personality. She'd be that person that would look on the bright side of things. I heard a, a clever quote from Greg Lawry. He's a pastor I listen to on the radio. He said that, you know, just, there's some people that bring joy wherever they go. And he said, there are others who bring joy whenever they go. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that Naomi would fit in that first category. though. We've got the two sons now, Malon and Chilion. This is a little cruel, but their names meant uh, puny or sickly. And uh, pining or wasting, so I mean, maybe the maybe they look pretty bad when they were born or something, but they certainly got uh, nailed with uh, with names, and it actually turned out to be true. So we'll look at some more names as we come to them, but because we have these names and their meanings, I think it'd be important to uh, consider this family uh, before we go further in light of the times they were living in, and to give us some insight into who they were. So. This again would have been during the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So I'd have a question. What can we determine or can we determine anything about Elimelech's personal level of faith from those first two verses? Well it's
2: interesting that I've always taken this as a uh, move without
1: faith. Very good. If you remember, that's great. A move without faith, and I agree with that. He uh, had uh, made the choice to seek what he needed from outside of where he was. Uh, remember I said that, that people that back then, they were characterized just in general by weak faith. They had a much more worldly perspective than God wanted. Um, and he lived in a city that was named for God's promise of providing. But does he exercise faith? I mean, it seems that he's doing what's right in his own eyes. Um, you know, if he doesn't give God praise, Judah, should he expect God's blessing in the process? Um, I think he demonstrates that his faith is weak. He, you know, right on the surface you have uh, leaving the house of bread to go to the garbage can. You know, and, and these were not just any uh, outside uh, people. This was, these were enemies of Israel. So you, you have to ask, is he an example then of someone whose God is king? And I think he wouldn't pass that test. So as I'm going through this book, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see a parallel with another story that Jesus gave. Uh, in the book of uh, Luke in chapter 15. Anybody know of the prodigal son? So let's look for that a little bit of that as we go through here. I kind of see Naomi uh, as that maybe, or the family itself, but they don't last long, so it's just Naomi. Uh, so uh, in, that, in that story, the prodigal son, you'll remember, uh, the son takes his inheritance from his wealthy father, and he goes into a far-off country. But ultimately he ends up, you know, in a pig pen. In Ruth, we kind of have this prodigal family, and they're far off country as Moab, but I think that we'll see a similar pattern in how God deals with the prodigal son and how he deals with just backslidden people in general. Now, what about Naomi and her faith? Well, she was a pleasant person, amenable, but I think her faith is weak too. I think both she and her husband are representative of, of a backslidden state of a backslidden believers. It seems that she's trusted more in her husband to supply her needs. And I mean more than she trusts in the Lord. So then I ask, well, who? what are Naomi's needs? How does she uh, prioritize her needs? Do you think she's worried about her spiritual uh, status before the Lord? Or do you think she's worried about what they're going to eat next and their physical? So I think she does. I think she uh, prioritizes her physical over her spiritual. But we're going to revisit this as we go through the book. And as we read, we should look for, uh, if her husband's not there, which will happen shortly, who or what will supply those needs for her? Okay. So then we'll move on. And I'm going to pick up the next three verses out of Ruth, if you're following. Um, It says, Then Elimelech Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. In the beginning, this book moves very rapidly. In the first five chapters, we have gone from the opening situation to Ruth, and this is probably the negative climax for Naomi. Excuse me, she's lost. You know what she went with. I also mentioned last week that they probably didn't. They probably lost their property when they left Bethlehem as well. And so she's at the she's at the bottom here. Uh, but notice that when her husband died, did she immediately pick up then and go back to Bethlehem? No then you have to ask, why? I mean, was she she becoming comfortable in Moab? Was she accustomed to it? Or was she shifting her source of supply? And who would that have been to? Her sons. Her sons. Right. She could shift her physical need supply to her sons to provide. Unfortunately, that choice runs out pretty quickly. Uh, And now we see three widows instead of just one. But... We have two more names to look at, so this is important. So let's look at first Orpah. Orpah, one of the Moabite daughters-in-law. Her name has multiple meanings suggested. One of them is fawn, like the deer, or youthful freshness, which might indicate a a state of athleticism. Uh, Another I've heard is neck. That's a little more difficult to put together. I've heard stiff-necked and I've heard back of the neck that seems to make more sense, though, because as we go through the book, we're going to see ultimately soon, Orpah is going to choose to turn her back on Naomi and, re- and stay in Moab so that n- the last thing Naomi sees of her will be the back of her neck. Ruth, also a Moabitess, a Gentile, uh, her name is friendship or companion, and I've also uh, heard beauty given as one of the choices. And what about... Naomi's two fragile sons, when they take Moabite wives, you know, is, then you get you ask yourself, was this is this okay? Is this kosher? Uh, Were there prohibi- prohibitions against this? Was this a violation of the Mosaic law? Well, I'd say probably in the specific, not, uh, but in general, yes, it was. It was certainly would have been frowned upon. Let me read you Deuteronomy chapter seven. Verses 1 through 4 that addresses that. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, here they are, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. and Don't say electric lights. Uh, there are seven nations larger and stronger than you. But uh, Ammon and Moab are not specifically mentioned there. It says, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. That was their instructions. But in the very next verse, we see that God knows they wouldn't do that because he says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So, intermarriage. Probably not right, but these two boys do it. And they don't seem to have a problem with it. It's just kind of generally stated there. So you have to ask, why wasn't it a problem? Where are the roots of this mistake that they're making? Where did the roots begin? Is there Christian application with that? lucky says they have their their uh, examples in their parents their dad chose to chose this way out so and then they look around and all they've got is Moab women there I mean, what are they supposed to do it's easy to continue jeff yeah
2: it's funny cuz there's a lot that's not here mm-hmm. so
1: Yes. That you had to go. But,
2: but if they were there for 10 years after your died, then the suggestion would be that
1: this is where we're planning on being. Right. So maybe it was meant to be temporary. The word sojourn, lots of translations use that, attach that kind of a temporary going in to a foreign country, but then ultimately not staying there, not, not, not permanent residence. And it appears that it says they remained right. 10 years. So that's not really a brief, a brief journey. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, when I, when I look at, well, what is it that keeps us, what makes us, how do we remain good examples, you know? You said at one time we were studying about the, the getting fuzzy truth, you know, looking at, at things and not being able to see the black and white is, is in this culture we live in. And that can happen easily. But the, mag, the, the focus comes in from the Word of God. That's where we stay in focus. We stay close to the Word of God. John, uh, John 15, the vine and the branches. I mean, you, I always go back to that, that abiding is so important. We're to abide. Jim. Jack, do you think this is sort of the
2: ultimate friendship
1: with the world? Well, sure. Which is with God? Right. I know, I mean, because he's seeking what he, what he needs. He is not sought out by faith, Elimelech, let's say. And it's in the world. I mean, God doesn't want us to go to the world. He wants us to have the faith faith to go to him. And to abide in him, we know that. We abide. He mentions abide in my word, specifically. He says abide in my love. And that you show your love by keeping his commandments. So that means obedience. But if we, if we just always seek what appears to be, from the worldly view, the easiest way out, we're not going before the Lord. That's what takes faith, and that's what he wants to bring out, I believe, especially out in the army. Jeff?
2: It kind of reminds me of Abraham and Lot when Abraham says, you choose your
1: way, right. and
2: I'll take the other, and Lot chooses Sodom. Um, and you think about, you know, these guys going to Moab, and then it's kind of nice here. People like the, you know, some of the, worldly right. things that, you know, um, so let, let's maybe stay here a little longer. We're
1: so that attraction, which, they, you know, you're just going to, it starts out as dabbling in it, I think. You can dabble in the world and get caught up in it. You know, Moab is a, a, a kind of a plateau area, and they had a lot better growing environment for their crops. They had crops, co- uh, you know, good crops a lot. And, and so always was very attractive at the time when these people are, you know, going hungry. But that little that little sojourn can turn into remaining in 10 years, and that can happen to Christians in the world as well. Doesn't
0: that also happen to the children of Israel when they go into Egypt and then when God actually, you know, removes them from Egypt, they still desire the food and the comfort?
1: Right. And, and I think that's so that awesome was, and comfort. that's brought, when they're there, though, they were mumbling and grumbling. Get us out. Yay, we're out. Now feed us. And, we don't, and we, don't give us the same thing at every meal, you know. So that says a lot about us, doesn't it? Very good. Okay, great. All right. Okay, now let's focus then on the death of the two boys. When they die, Naomi, she's now left with two daughters-in-law. I'm going to pick it up then in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 1. Let me say something, a little point uh, uh, to insert here. From this point forward in the book, through chapter 1, let's say, just through chapter 1, the, it takes on a distinctly feminine character. So we, guys, may not always relate to some things that women are more easily able to see, but it does do that, so we'll just be aware of that. Let me read. Ruth uh, 1, verses 6 and 7. Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she'd heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food, meaning Bethlehem was out of famine. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So it is that all within uh, 10 years, uh, she's lost her husband and her sons, and she seems to then to have lost her security. But what security are we talking about? She's still thinking physical, right? To her, physical is everything. But now is when she remembers God. Now is when she decides to leave. Let me just say this, you know, and I mentioned this last week, this whole book is going to be presenting momentous decisions, momentous dilemmas that require choices. And not just Ruth, not, excuse me, not just Naomi, but Ruth, Elimelech, Elimelech already failed his. And, you know, and there, we're going to see these things just kind of coming in succession as we go through. Um, the choices that are made are going to be the, the result of the outworking of faith. That's what we're looking for, and that's what God wants. In the case of Naomi, it's the, out, the outworkings of coming back to faith. Okay, so now just think of this uh, uh, decision from Naomi's point of view. She's um, this returning to Bethlehem. She now has no male cover, no male cover—not her husband, not her sons. So this is totally her own decision. She owns it, and it's her personal decision to get up and go back. And I think that at this point, Moab is going—it represents you know errors of the past for her, and she wants to come out of that. Uh, she wants to return, and she's, so she's reversing the decision that was made, and she's going to head back in the direction of Judah. Also, I think it sounds like the prodigal son there. You know, this is probably the pig pen for him. Uh, it would relate to where Naomi is. Uh, but she's heard then that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. In the book of Ruth, this is one of two places where God's sovereign providence is directly credited. The Lord has done this, not Baal, not Chemosh, not any fake God, but the Lord. Another interesting
0: thing I see in that is that the word that he uses is lamb for bread. The Lord has provided bread. And I, I don't know, I just find that so cool
1: Lay him. the Lord has provided bread. Very good. And I think uh, also look that, that word, one of those words I tell you is in here in these passages twice, return, return. Okay? And I think for Naomi, we are witnessing the beginning of her repentance. Not that she is there yet, but look, she's at least moving toward, toward the place and the circumstances where God is going to bless her. OK, we'll move on to the next. Three verses. Let me say something else about the book. Up, up until now, everything has been in a narrative form. We haven't heard anybody speak yet. And, and we're gonna, they're going to start talking now. And this is a, a, a literary device that's going to be used throughout the rest of the book. The remaining 75% of the book is going to be dialogue, OK? So th- that feature is changing as we go forward. So let me read uh, Ruth. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. I think here it's evident that Naomi loves these girls, loves her daughters-in-law. It's a bit unusual, not just from the standard mother-daughter in-law thing, but from the, from the Moab-Israelite thing. That's the bigger picture here. These people were constantly uh, in antagonistic relationships with each other. They had been enemies. But these two girls had been good wives for her sons, who Naomi calls the dead here, and they'd been kind to her. There's a second word there that I've talked about looking for, hesed, kindness, that, that uh, love, that loyalty love from covenant, grace, and sacrifice. That, that's used here. So then the question is, will all three woman, women go back to Bethlehem? Well, we'll, we'll read and on and see, but as, they, as Naomi thinks about the situation, uh, she's kind of considered the prospects for things to come, not only for herself, but before the, daughter, before the daughter's-in-law regarding remarriage. And she sees them as pretty slight if they go back with her to Israel. And she doesn't think that Orpah or Ruth have considered the cost of everything that's going to lay ahead. So what we have here in these verses is the first of three admonitions that Naomi gives to these girls to tell them to stay. Not to come to talk them out of it, but the you know the, this is going to involve some momentous decisions. There are momentous decisions to make for the other people in here as well. So, and, you know, by comparison, it makes me think of Jesus. He spoke of, um, he gave a story analogy of a builder who was going to build a great tower, but he didn't have enough money to do it when he started it. He also talked about a king going into battle without enough troops to win the war. And ultimately, in Luke 14:33, Jesus says that unless you give up your possessions, meaning those things that, that own you, you cannot be his disciple unless you give up. So what would uh, each of the daughter laws be giving up if they did not remain in Moab, if they did go to Judah? What would they be giving up? Everything, husbands, provision. I wrote six. That's you know the first one is any chance of a future marriage in Judah. You know what Jewish male was going to want to marry a, a Gentile widow. There's one exception there though. It depends on what family they came from, and we'll see that. Uh, any chance of wealth? No, Naomi has no money, right? They gave up their land. There's nothing. There's no future inheritance either. Um, how about social community? What would these ladies be? Ex- what could they expect in the way of community? They're leaving their families. All their everyone that they know, other than Naomi. They're leaving their families. They're gonna. I mean, they're they're pretty much gonna be isolated uh, with Naomi. Very good. And Leaving your family is a big deal. Family is a major attraction, right. And we see that and, you know, as, you know, as a grandparent. I want my kids living close enough, you know, and, and that's a luxury, I find out, you know, as you talk to other people. It's really, you know, and that's a very big pull uh, on the heartstrings for sure. Very good. One thing, though, that they would be giving up, and I think this is, this is the momentous decision right here. They'd be giving up their culture, and more importantly, their heathen gods, okay they're heathen gods, they'd be, you know, saying goodbye to, uh, Chemosh, they would be, um, but they would be instead choosing the true and the living God of Israel, so, you know, it's really, what's looking like a giving up is really a gain, you know. Maybe
2: they
1: saw that. Maybe one of them did. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, another thing that, that, um, Naomi says is that God had turned against her. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's interesting. She, uh, she says, uh, no, my, my daughter's, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against you. Right. So I think it's a very...
1: That's an important point. So we're seeing this is starting to come out of Naomi, some bitterness and some blaming. Uh, it looks like, at least to us, right, that, you know, she has no responsibility and all this is God is against her. So we'll, we're going to uh, examine that further too. I have a question, and maybe I guess it's to the ladies. What does this mean, go back to your mother's house? Uh, when she's trying to talk them out of coming, I mean, in a male-dominated dom- society, what, what? Anyone have any insight into what that would mean? She was sending the the Gentile girls back to their mothers' mothers' house. I guess confer with your mothers. What do you have, Leah?
0: I guess when I think about that, I think of how um, mothers and daughters have a unique relationship. Like especially how we think about our parents. Uh-huh. It's not that daughters don't miss or long for their fathers when they pass away, but when it comes to specifically needing advice,
1: you'll hear, well, okay. I wish my mother was here.
0: So maybe it's that. Very good. You're in a See,
1: really that's what we, that's we needed to hear. To hear. <laughs> See, that special, unique relationship between a mother and a daughter that maybe, you know, the daughter and the and the father don't always have. Maybe they talked about marriage plans, you know, or that type of thing. Maybe that would be easier. So that that's pretty plausible. Okay. We, we think about the situation for women at this point in time as pretty much marriage or prostitution or right. the, the very limited option. Right, you know, uh, what I haven't I played up enough is, the, is this marriage situation. This is, in this society, in these times, this was a very big deal. This was the, uh, the, the provision for these women, you know, just culturally. I mean, right, they didn't have, they couldn't just go out and get jobs in this time, you know, like we have in this society. So... It, it, it plays a much bigger role. She tells them. Uh, she even puts a blessing. She uh, asks a blessing over uh, these girls. She invokes the Lord Yahweh, and uh, in, the, in these two verses, and uh, and included in finding she. And th- uh, this marriage for them is rest. Find rest in the homes of your husband. Then I like the fact that they they kissed, and I think. This is, for at least from Naomi's standpoint, kissing was like, it's like a goodbye kiss. Okay, goodbye. You know, they kiss. Uh, and then they all weep. And so, I mean, the, the deep sorrow in this scene is just undeniable. And I think that in the emotion of the moment, both of the daughters-in-law say, oh, no, surely, surely we're going to return with you. Surely we will. And so we have two new believers, Right. If we read on, we'll find out otherwise, though. So let's go through verses 11 to 14. Uh, But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lift up their voices and they wept again. But watch. And Orpah kissed their mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth is convinced the most important thing that they need is to be remarried. And to have a, chari- a heritage, neither one, neither one of these girls had kids. Remember, they had not had kids or not mentioned in their marriages to the boys. And here she entreats them then the second time, and she's making a logical argument. Her reasoning to herself, Naomi, is, is very solid. She says, she has basically three points. She says, uh, well, we can't invoke, you know, the Leveret marriage. That uh, Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6 that I read last week about the brother... The brother-in-law marrying the wife of the deceased. She, she has no more sons. When she says she's too old to have a, su- a husband, she means she's, too, she's past childbearing age. All right, so that's out the door. And even, number three, even hypothetically, if that weren't out the door, if she were married tonight and to have more children, would they, would they wait around? I mean, how, for how long? And even then, they would be cradle robbers when they married them, the boys, you know? She says, it's harder for me than for you. And I believe she was referring to childbearing, her, her potential. She has no potential. And the girls, they, they at least have pot- potential still to bear children, even though they'd not had uh, kids to that point. But I think that statement, just in and of itself, can come across a little insensitive. I mean, there's three widows there, as I count them, right? And they all have grief. Uh, anyway. The important point in, again, as Kevin has already mentioned though, is this, this started, we're starting to see this blaming of God. God has afflicted God's affliction. She's going to repeat this same sentiment uh, before the end of the chapter.
0: walked by what you saw, yes. instead of by knowing God, right. then you would say, yes, he has turned his back. On right, you know, she sees it. He's not providing rain, he's not providing mm-hmm. food, you know, so we're gonna go do something else, then this next thing, then
1: the next thing, then the next thing, and I mean, I think in the flesh he had a reason. Right, Heather it. points up a very valid point, that there's a reason, this is not an irrational position to take, right, uh, you know, There are stages of grief, and hers has caused her to speak in anger against God. This is not unusual. It's not an unusual reaction. I've seen it. You've seen it. Maybe I've expressed it, you know, initially with God to be mad. I do believe she's a woman of faith, though, because she really hasn't doubted that God doesn't have a hand in this, Right? She prayed over those girls and, and used him. She's she's giving God credit for ultimate, for his sovereignty. It's just she doesn't like it, right? She's seeing the glass is half empty. Miss Pleasant is now seeing the glass as half empty. I think what she's viewing as affliction and, and judgment from God is really discipline and chastening from God. We'll look at that in Hebrews 12 later, but...
0: Well, I wonder with that if it's also that, like there's that statement earlier of that she hears that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So now in hindsight, she understands that, like the, the provision was coming. They didn't see it. And so they, they basically insisted that the circumstance dictate the action. And
1: therefore, we must leave Judah Very good. Because we cannot see the provision. Therefore, we have to create our own. This is right. So I think uh, Lugie points up that she's seeing... The spiritual side of things more clearly now yeah. than when she was looking only at the physical. God's working on her, do you think? She's shifting. Her her thoughts are shifting. All right. She's mad, but she's looking to God, and she's not running from him anymore. She won't run from him anymore. Okay. Yes. She represents the hand
0: of the Lord against her. Yes. She's missing the point. There is an invisible hand in him.
1: Her. Right. You see no accidents. You see the constant, you're aware of the provision of God. We're seeing that now, aren't we, start to come out? Very good. And I agree. You know, I'm so glad we've moved out of these previous verses. They're such downers. (laughs) But they're there for a reason. They're downers for me because it convicts me, I'll tell you. Uh, But as we move forward, the light's going to start showing on this whole situation. And the the book just, uh, it's beautiful. And, you know, and it's a picture of what Christ has done for us. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to get here. We've run out of time. Uh, This is nowhere near where I wanted to go today. But you know what? I'm not in charge. So we will stop here uh, and pick it up next week. Jeff, would you pray for us?